We've been going through the book of Matthew, as you know, and today we're in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 7. Matthew 5, 7 says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And this verse is part of Matthew's introduction or or Jesus's introduction in the sermon that we call the Sermon on the Mount. This verse is going to take us deep into the gospel. And uh, I'm excited to, to get into this with you this morning. This verse, as we will see, really dives us deep into the gospel. And the gospel is about mercy, specifically about receiving mercy from God. And if we just pepper this verse with questions, and if we answer those questions, the gospel is going to come out. And I just want to do that as a little bit of an introduction as we start to think about what mercy is and what this verse is all about. So let's do that. What is mercy? What is mercy? And the answer is that mercy is pity or compassion for somebody who's in misery or distress. Mercy is not only a a feeling for such a one. So when, when we see somebody in misery and distress, it's not only a feeling, but it's a feeling then that moves us to act to relieve that misery or that distress. And so if we ask another question then, as Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, we could ask, well, why do we need mercy? Why is it blessed to be in a position of receiving mercy? Well, why is that? Well, it's because we are in a miserable condition as sinners. We're in a miserable condition as sinners. John 3.36, Jesus says, the wrath of God remains on him. The wrath of God remains on one who does not believe in the gospel and who has not received this mercy. And so we are going to hell unless God has mercy on us. And so that maybe logically brings up another question. Why does God have wrath? Or why does God punish sin? And that question really brings us in to the depths of the character of God. Why does God punish sin? Sometimes we maybe hear somebody who I would say doesn't really know what they're talking about and they want to kind of come about a question like this and they say, well, God is love. God is love and, and He doesn't have wrath. He's not angry about sin. John 1 and 1 John 4, 8 says, anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And so we can agree that yes, God is love. God is love. God is all of His attributes. God is all of who He is eternally. And so He is love. He is just. He is merciful. He is righteous. God is holy. He's omnipotent. That is, He is all-powerful. He is eternal and unchanging and all-knowing and infinite. These are some of the attributes of God as we call them. God is the perfect being, the one than which none greater can be conceived, as we've been talking about in men's ministry week after week. God is the perfect being. And God is all of these things and more, but He is not these things in a divided way, as though God were made up of various parts that complete Him and that compete within Him. God's love, for example, is not at war 
with his justice. So then we could ask again, why does God punish sin? And we might often say, and rightly so, that he is just and that he is a a just judge and a just judge must punish sin. And, And that's right. God is just and he must not allow sin to go unpunished in his justice. To not punish sin would be to deny God's justice, which is the one thing that God cannot do. He cannot deny himself. He must be who he is. He cannot do anything other than to be who he is. But let's just back up a few steps again and and ask this from another perspective. Why does God punish sin? Let's look at that question from the standpoint of God's love. Some people in the the world have this idea that love and wrath are not compatible. Uh, Maybe you've heard something like this. A, A loving God wouldn't send people to hell, they say. And to them, love would overlook all sin and love would welcome everybody in and and bring everybody together. And you've likely heard something like this. Maybe some really bad sinners, sure. Maybe they should be punished. But the the rest of us who are, you know, decent folks, a, a loving God would would sweep our sin under a, a giant cosmic rug and, and, uh, and just welcome us all into his heaven. And I want us to think about that a little bit deeper this morning. What is love? Love is an action. Love is not merely a, a sentimental feeling. Love actually does something. And what does love do? Love seeks the good of those that it loves, right? That's what love is. Love is a, a seeking the, the benefit of the person that is loved. And God's love means that God seeks the greatest good for those people that He loves. Now, what is our greatest good? I'm just kind of going through some logical questions here this morning. What is our greatest good? What is the best thing that God and His love can do for us? And the answer to that, I think, is to allow us to know Him. There is nothing greater than God. There is no better gift that God can give than Himself. And now perhaps we can begin to see why it's actually quite loving for God to punish sin with an infinite penalty. Because God loves His people by staying true to who He is and by revealing His infinite goodness to us. And part of His infinite goodness includes punishing wickedness and all that is contrary to His greatness and His majesty and His splendor. Just try to imagine a heaven in which some of the people there were indifferent to God and God didn't do anything about it. It's really a a horrible thought to imagine a a creature in the midst of heaven surrounded by angels and saints whose one desire is to worship and glorify this great and majestic and amazing God and to think of a creature in that place that is utterly indifferent to God and that he would be allowed to be in the presence of God in that kind of state. A loving God who loved His people and realized that He was the greatest treasure that He could give them would remove such a vile creature from His 
presence, lest it hinder the joy of those who want to worship and love Him. And so from every angle, we can see then that God must punish sin. He must judge sin. And therefore, we as sinners are in a miserable condition because we must be punished for our sin. Not only must we pay an infinite penalty for our sins against this infinitely holy God, but we will also miss out on the infinite goodness of enjoying God and knowing Him and worshiping Him forever. And so we are doubly cursed as miserable sinners. We First, we are going to hell, and second, we're going to miss of heaven. And we won't spend eternity in God's glorious presence, not unless... Not unless we receive mercy. And mercy again is pity towards the miserable that moves somebody to deliver them from their miserable state. And that's exactly what God does in His mercy towards us. And that brings up maybe another question. In light of all that we've said about God punishing sin, how is it that God can have mercy on us. In light of the fact that God must punish sinners and we are sinners, and I'm not even going to try to prove that this morning, we are sinners. How can God have mercy on us? And here is where all of God's attributes shine forth the brightest. Because God in His infinite wisdom devised a way to save us from His holy wrath without compromising His justice. In justice and love, God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to the earth. He is God the Son, and God the Son added to Himself a human nature. And He lived on earth as a perfect man. He was fully God and fully man. He was man in every way like us, except that He had no sin. He had a human nature, but He didn't have a sinful human nature. And He came... Jesus Christ came to act as our representative. And He paid the penalty for our sins when He died on that cross. And He did this so that God could be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. He did this so that sin could be punished and yet God could be merciful. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake, for our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. This is called the great exchange. Our sin became Christ's and Christ's righteousness became ours. And this explains how God can be merciful without denying Himself. Now the question then comes as we kind of think through the Gospel, just from asking questions of this merciful verse, how do we get this righteousness for ourselves? Another way to ask this is, what must I do to be saved? And here's where we need to be careful. What must I do to be saved? That's the question the Philippian jailer asked Paul in Acts 16. He asked Paul and Silas. Uh, He brought them out of prison and he said to them, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And we typically and rightly 
tell somebody that if in order to be saved, you must repent and believe in Jesus Christ. You must believe in Him and turn away from your sin. The Bible teaches that justification is by faith or through faith or upon faith. Through trusting the person of Christ, God counts Christ and what He did as ours. His righteousness is imputed to us through faith. Faith grabs hold of Christ and the sinner and Christ are united. And this union with Christ is how God applies what Christ did to us. Now so far, I probably haven't said anything really new to anybody in this room. But look at our verse again if you're still in Matthew 5 and verse 7. Jesus says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And as we think about this verse, we could ask it this way, who receives mercy according to this verse? Who receives mercy according to Matthew 5 and verse 7, according to Jesus Christ? And it seems to say the merciful will receive mercy. It does say that the merciful will receive mercy. But here's where we need to be careful Does this verse teach that God will be merciful to me because I am merciful to others? Will God be merciful to me because I am merciful to others? If so, how much mercy is enough to ensure that God will be merciful to me? Now let me be really clear here. I don't think Jesus is teaching a work salvation in this verse. I think the best way to understand this verse is the, the person who is merciful is in a blessed state and because they are in that blessed state, they will receive mercy. Now the, the difference is so slight maybe in that wording that I wonder if everyone was even able to catch that. But subtle differences in words can have a massive difference in eternity. And so we need to be careful. On the one hand, the one way of understanding this is that salvation depends on me being merciful. The other way of of thinking about this is that salvation results in me being merciful. In the first case, salvation is based on works. In the second case, salvation produces works. And I hope that by the end of this message, you will know the difference between these two understandings of salvation And why this verse teaches that being merciful is the result of being saved. Being saved, in other words, will make you merciful. And if you are merciful, you will then receive mercy. But if you, but you will not receive mercy because you are merciful, you will receive mercy because being merciful showed that you were actually saved. Being merciful is evidence of genuine salvation. Now these things might be subtle, but they are extremely, extremely important. And Grace Bible Fellowship, I want us to be a people who really know the gospel of Jesus Christ. If there was one thing that I could have you know after my ministry, it would be the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want us to know it deeply in our hearts so that it impacts our day-to-day lives. I want us to know that gospel so well that it changes everything 
about our lives. And I'm not talking then about just a mere intellectual knowledge, although it needs to start with an intellectual knowledge, but it must go beyond an intellectual knowledge. It must go beyond our minds so that the gospel motivates our actions and our affections and our wills. What what I'm talking about is what the Puritans used to call experiential knowledge or experimental knowledge. Knowledge that changes living. And I want to have, I want us to have this kind of knowledge because, or, or really for the, for the good of our own souls, first of all. For the good of our own souls. You know, if the gospel hasn't changed your life, you are not a Christian. Think about this. How can you be a Christian if you don't know the message that you need to believe in order to be a Christian? You see how critical it is that we know the gospel and we know it in such a way that it transforms our lives. And second, I want you to know the gospel for your own fruitfulness in ministry because everything really ties back to the gospel. Everything is connected to the gospel. Think about it like this. How can you help someone else grow in their faith if you can't explain to them the foundational teaching of the gospel and how it should affect their lives? Or how can you be used to lead somebody to the Lord if you don't know how to explain the gospel to them? And so I want us to know this gospel for the good of our own souls and for the fruitfulness of our ministries and our lives. Now the passage that we're looking at today suits this really well because it really forces us to know the gospel well, both intellectually and experientially. Intellectually, it it forces us to understand it with our minds, maybe in a, a new way for some of us this morning. And we need to understand how the gospel functions in this verse. And then internally, in our hearts, this verse is going to really teach us to respond to the gospel in the way that we should. Well, that was the, the introduction, and we're going to look at this under two headings then this morning. We'll see for the first half of the verse, and then we're going to look at the second half of the verse. Blessed are the merciful, and then, for they shall receive mercy. And I, I've called this message the blessed merciful, and we're going to just look at it under two headings. We're going to see first the the blessed merciful we're going to see number 1 their present state and then number 2 we're going to see their future state so their present state and then their future state number 1 their present state verse 7 blessed are the merciful this is their present state the blessed person as we really saw last week as we looked at the other beatitudes is a in a favorable position that's what it means to be blessed it means you're in a favorable position it means that you're in an enviable state it could be translated happy are the merciful but happy is just too shallow of a word it's really a a deep joy that this is talking about a deep joy that comes from this position that they're in and the knowledge of their future rewards another translation could be congratulations you are in a state in which congratulations is in order if you are merciful now last week we saw that none of the blessed conditions in the beatitudes are natural to man these represent a believer this is a a true believer if you are in one of the in all of these blessed states that jesus gives in the first 
uh, eight, ten verses there from verse three to verse ten of chapter five. If you, if those things are true of you, you are a genuine believer. Each of the eight beatitudes describe the character of a genuine disciple of Jesus Christ. Now, you don't become a believer by doing these things. Instead, you are a believer if these things are true of you. And in each case, the reason the person is blessed is because of something future. The state of the blessed person now will result in future blessings. And in this case, the people who are merciful now will receive mercy in the future. They shall receive mercy. Now, what does it mean to be merciful? What is this merciful person like? Well, mercy, as we said, has to do with compassion. Mercy is concerned about others and especially about others' need. Mercy is especially focused on those in misery and distress. It's a feeling of pity for those in troubles and trials. It's a feeling, but it goes beyond feeling and and takes action. The merciful person does what they can do to relieve others in their distress. And in the New Testament, mercy is particularly connected with the misery that results from the consequences of sin. Mercy is particularly connected with the misery that results from the consequences of sin. Sin brings misery. Sin promises pleasure but it doesn't deliver. Mercy is very often connected with forgiveness. Mercy is broader than forgiveness, but it definitely includes forgiveness. And God is the ultimate example of mercy and being merciful. In Exodus 34 and verse 6, God declares His name, His character to Moses, and He says this, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful, and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. And so God is merciful and gracious. The Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, translates that word that the ESV translates merciful. Some versions translate that compassionate. The the Greek translation of the Old Testament uses the same word as we have in our text. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful. God's mercy is chiefly seen in the fact that He forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. His mercy is especially seen in how He delivers us from the consequences of our sin in our salvation. Our sin had piled up for us an unpayable debt. Our sin against an infinitely good God required an infinite penalty. And the consequence of our sin was God's wrath in hell. But God pitied our dreadful estate and He moved to relieve us through Jesus Christ. He sent Jesus to be the propitiation for our sins. He sent Jesus to be the payment that satisfied His own wrath to cover our sins and to remove our sins. And so mercy moved God to save us. He pitied our condition. We can see this in numerous scriptures. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, 
made us alive together with Christ. And then it says, by grace you have been saved. Or 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. 1 Peter 2 and verse 9, Peter says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And again, we see it in Titus chapter 3 and verse 5. He saved us. That is, God saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. God's mercy saves us. God's mercy washes us clean of our sin and forgives us of our sin. God's mercy saves us and it changes us. It forgives our sins and it delivers us from the penalty of those sins. And God's mercy also delivers us from the power of those sins so that we are now free from the bondage of sin. Once we were slaves to our sin, but now by mercy we are set free from sin. And when we realize by faith what God has done for us, it makes us merciful. And so we ourselves become a merciful and forgiving people. To be blessed means to be favored by God. And when God blesses us in salvation, we become merciful. And to really see how this works in our salvation, I want to take you to a parable in Matthew chapter 18. And so turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. The parable really shows us two things today. First, it's going to show us how great our forgiveness is, how great God's mercy is towards us. And then second, we'll see how we should respond to God's mercy and forgiveness. We're going to start at verse 21. It all starts with Peter's question. Peter came up to him. Peter came up and said to him, that is to the Lord, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. 
he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant! I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now it all starts with Peter's question, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Now Peter was being very generous with his seven times. The Pharisees taught three times, And so Peter doubled it, added one, and thought, wow, I'm going to be really generous seven times, Lord. But Jesus says that a disciple of his, one of his disciples, should go way beyond seven. And in verse 22, he says, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Now, there's some debate on whether this should be translated 77 times or 70 times seven. So it's either 77 or 490 times. But however you understand it, this is a massive amount of forgiveness. We are to be a merciful people. And let's just take the smaller number here. And if you really forgave your brother who came and asked for forgiveness 77 times, do you think you would know when the 78th time happened? Are you keeping track of how many times that you have forgiven this person? Probably not. You know, one commentator said that the point is not that you can now blow your stack on the 78th time. Is that a saying? Blow your stack? You know, in the cartoons where the, the guy's head gets red and steam comes out of the ears? That is not the, the point of this parable. Now, to help Peter get this forgiving spirit, Jesus teaches him a parable to really teach him how to have the right kind of attitude in forgiveness. And the king in the parable represents God. And God is going to settle accounts with his servant. And in verse 24, a servant comes who owes 10,000 talents. A talent in the ancient Near East is a, a weight measurement. And it could have been for gold, silver, copper, any kind of gold. It doesn't say what the talent is here. But it's a weight measurement and it varied somewhat throughout the biblical history. And so we don't exactly know what a talent was. But it's somewhere around 6,000 denarii. Now, to you don't have denaries either. So a denarii was about what a, a day laborer would make in a day of pay. Just a, a common worker would make a denarii a day. And so one talent was 6,000 denarii or 6,000 days pay. And a 10,000 talent debt would then take 60 million days to repay at one denarii a day if you didn't eat any food and all you made was a denarii a day. 60 million days. That's 193,000 years for the average day laborer who works six days a week every week of the year, no holidays. So that is 193,000 years. Now, the average person lives about 80 years, so we're talking about 
way more than anyone ever is going to pay, even if you make a whole bunch of denarii in a day. You are never going to be able to pay this debt. And so the point is that this slave, this servant, owed a ridiculous amount to the king, and it's really an unpayable amount. Now, what would a typical king in the ancient world think if one of his subjects racked up a debt of about 20 times the nation's yearly income. If you took all the income that came in in Jerusalem in Herod's day, I think it was about 900 uh, talents would go through Herod's, Herod's territory in a year. So what would a king do if a servant racked up 20 times the nation's yearly income? That would be unheard of. He would have said, off with his head or send him to the tortures, which is actually how you probably should translate the jailers in in the verse there where it says, send him to the jailers. It's really send him to the torturers in verse 34. That's what we would expect. We would expect, send this man to the torturers. In verse 25, he is unable to pay. Look at it again. And since he could not pay... His master ordered him to be sold and with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have mercy, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And so he begs for patience and the king went well beyond patience. Look at verse 27. And out of pity for him, out of this emotional feeling for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Now the forgiveness of that large of debt is truly extravagant. This debt is so massive that it would bankrupt the entire country. This king is a merciful king indeed. Now that's shock number one in the story. The king forgave. Shock number two is in what the slave does next. And this is maybe as surprising, if not more surprising, than what came before. This man, this servant, left his master's presence, and he seems to have totally forgot what just happened to him. And he finds a fellow servant, verse 28, a a brother, if we use the words of Peter's from verse 21. And this guy owes him 100 denarii, 100 days wages. And he begins to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. And so his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. Now compare that with verse 26. And so the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And he is reminded almost word for word of his own plea for mercy. But he refused. And this refusal to show mercy, greatly distressed the other servants. The New American Standard Bible translates it, they were deeply grieved. They were grieved to a very great extent. They were extremely grieved when they saw this kind of behavior. They were grieved to the core. This man had just been forgiven 10,000 talents. That's 60 million denarii. And now he won't forgive a fellow brother who owes him a hundred denarii? He was forgiven 600,000 times more, moments before. No wonder the fellow slaves were deeply grieved. 
It makes no sense for this servant to refuse forgiveness. It's like he has no sense of what his master did for him. And so this makes no sense, and it's like this man has no sense. And I think that's exactly the point of this parable. Now we need to be careful how we interpret this parable, like we need to be careful careful in interpreting all parables. Typically parables only teach one main point. And the story, in order to, to be a parable and to, to have a story, to, to carry the story along, the story needs some details, but we're not called to interpret all the details. We're usually only meant to draw one main point from a parable. And Jesus really draws that main point out in verse 35. Look at it. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. Now what will also Jesus' Father do if we do not forgive? Well, the same thing the King did in verses 32 to 34. Then his master, Matthew 18.32, then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant? There's our word mercy. As I had mercy on you. And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Now again, we need to be careful how we interpret this. In a number of Jesus' parables, servants of the one who represents God, often end up in a place that represents hell. Let me say that again. In a number of Jesus' parables, there's servants of the one who represents God that end up in a place that represents hell. And in this parable, this particular servant of the king is handed over to the torturers until he pays his unpayable debt. And so he represents an unbeliever. He represents an unbeliever. Notice in verse 32, he is called wicked. Now that's a a key interpretive point. He is an unbeliever. He is one of the wicked. But we could actually say that he represents then a professing believer. Somebody who says that they're a believer. Somebody who claims to be saved, but denies it with his works. Now we should not use this parable to really teach beyond this. This parable does not teach, for example, that God will forgive somebody one day and then unforgive them if they don't forgive others. The main point is that if you are forgiven, you if you are forgiven and you have any sense of it at all, you will also forgive. The parable says to Peter, if you want to be really forgiving, Peter, just remember what the Father forgave you. Remember how ridiculous it would be for you not to forgive. And it's a warning too. Because if you don't forgive, you won't be forgiven. And the reason is, failure to forgive shows a heart that really has no sense at all that you've been forgiven. To put it another way, in in line with what we saw last week, if we fail to forgive others, or if we fail to show mercy, we demonstrate that we ourselves are not really poor in spirit. And that we do not mourn over our sin and that we are not meek. 
to not be merciful is to act completely out of sync with our salvation that we claim to have. To fail to show mercy is utterly shocking and deeply grievous in light of God's incredible mercy in our lives. Now I I should note here, these verses are talking about failing to show mercy to someone who has actually sinned against us, and they have actually now come to us acknowledging that sin, and they are asking for forgiveness. Now when somebody isn't acknowledging their sin or asking forgiveness, we should have an attitude of readiness to forgive. And I really can't cover much beyond that of particular cases in this message today, but if you have a a situation in which you're struggling to forgive, then that's why you have a pastor that you can come and talk to and we can kind of work through what should you do in your particular situation. But let me say it this way. The true Christian is one who understands the enormous, unpayable debt of sin that they were under. And they see that God has removed that debt by paying for it through the sacrifice of His own Son, Jesus Christ. And this reality causes them to be a forgiving and a merciful people. And so you see how the Gospel is designed to affect our lives. The merciful person is blessed because God has favored them and save them. And their present state then is a, a state of blessedness. Now second, let's look at their future state. And we'll cover this one a little bit quicker here this morning. Verse 7 again, their future state. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. <clears throat> the merciful person is now in a favored position because a day is coming when they will receive mercy. This speaks again of their future state. All the blessings of the Beatitude really look forward to a future time, to blessings in the future. This whole sermon, as we saw a few weeks ago, is oriented towards the future. The disciple of Christ will have persecution now, but a great reward in heaven. And that great reward in heaven will not fade. It's a place where moth and rust will not destroy. It's a place where thieves will not break in and steal. The disciple of Christ will be rewarded in eternity. That is the blessing. But the way this is worded in verse 7, and even what we saw in the parable where the disciple was judged based on his actions, I think that might make us a little bit uncomfortable. The merciful will receive mercy. And, and in all the Beatitudes, the word they is emphatic. It's, it's emphasized. And so it's, it's kind of something like this. They and they only will receive mercy. Only the merciful will receive mercy. If we don't forgive, Jesus says, if we don't forgive from our hearts, His Father won't forgive us. Now, I want to show you this same kind of thing in a few other places in Scripture. Look at the prayer in Matthew 6.12. This is the, the, the disciples' prayer. In verse 12, we're to pray, Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And then in verse 14, Jesus expands on that. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, 
neither will your father forgive your trespasses. Jesus states it both positively and negatively there. If we forgive, we will be forgiven. If we don't forgive, neither will we be forgiven. This is serious, serious stuff. Now what verse 15 means, or whatever it means, I sure don't want to commit that sin. Now what are we to make of this? I already said a a person who sees the extent of their sin will be made a merciful and forgiving person when they realize that God has wiped their sin away. But there's more going on in, in these verses than just that. What seems to be happening here, and, and you might need to hang on your seats for this one, what seems to be happening here is a future judgment of professing disciples, a future judgment of professing disciples based on their works. Let me show you this in another place in the same sermon, verse 19 of chapter 7. <clears throat> Verse 19 of chapter 7, Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. If we keep going there, verse 21, we've shown you this a number of times already. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Who's going to go to heaven? the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Now, what's wrong with these people? According to verse 21, they don't do God's will. According to verse 23, they're rejected because Jesus never knew them. But then another reason is given. They're rejected because they are workers of lawlessness. They are workers of lawlessness. Now, what's going on in all of these verses? You know, the way that Jesus is talking about salvation here is is a way that we typically don't talk about salvation. This isn't how we typically go about it. I showed you two weeks ago that this sermon is to believers who have God as their Father. This is a sermon for professing believers. Now, Jesus is not teaching that you become a believer by doing the will of the Father. Jesus is not teaching that you become a Christian by refraining from doing lawlessness. Jesus is also not teaching that you can lose your salvation if you don't do the will of the Father. Or if you don't show mercy. Jesus isn't teaching that if you fail to forgive, or if you're not merciful enough, you will lose your salvation. Now, what Jesus is teaching, I think, is best seen again in chapter 7, and we'll start a little earlier, verse 17. He says, So every healthy tree bears good fruit. Every healthy tree, I I showed you last time, two times ago, that this is speaking about somebody who is born again, somebody who is genuinely saved. They become a healthy tree and they bear good fruit. But the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire That's speaking about hell there. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. A true believer can be recognized by their fruits. 
And there's going to be a day of judgment where true believers will be separated from false ones. And Scripture teaches that that judgment will be based upon, again, our works. Now that might make you uncomfortable. Listen carefully to what I'm saying here. I'm not saying that we are saved by our works. I'm saying that there will be a day when our salvation will be judged by our works. The way that James says it is that our faith will be shown by genuine... Sorry, James says it this way, our faith will be shown genuine by our works. Another way to say it is that genuine saving faith will be manifested by a transformed life. And theologically, if you want it theologically, this is called declarative justification. Declarative justification. There is going to be a day of judgment, a future day, where the justification that we have by faith will itself be justified by our fruit or by our transformed life. Or if you can handle it, by our works. And these works or these fruits in no way save us or contribute to our salvation, but they will be used to test the genuineness of the salvation that we claim to have. Declarative justification is how we can understand Jesus' words in our verse, blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Now let me just show you this same kind of principle in one other place. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. Verse 35. Jesus says here, The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Now Jesus does not mean that we will be justified by words, as though our words could declare us righteous apart from the justification by faith that we receive through Jesus Christ. If that were the case, every single one of us would be condemned. If it was up to my words being the, the, the factor of my justification, then I am definitely going to hell. If it's up to my showing of mercy that's going to be the, the way that I'm going to receive mercy, then we might as well just give it up now because there's no hope of us showing perfect mercy. But Jesus is teaching that. Listen here. Jesus is teaching, if you are justified by faith, you will be made a new creature. You will be made a good person. You will be changed. And that justification, that salvation will change you and your words. And by that change, you will be declared to be a justified person. Now, I I began by saying that I, I want us to be a people who know the gospel experientially and intellectually. I want us to know the gospel in our hearts and in our heads. And I hope this has challenged you in both ways. Have you seen God's amazing saving grace in removing the unpayable debt of your sin through Christ? If yes, then let me ask you this. Have you seen it in such a way that it has made you a merciful and forgiving person? Holding a grudge 
bitterness, unforgiveness, and such things are entirely inconsistent with someone who claims to believe this gospel. One commentator said, forgiveness not shown is forgiveness not known. Now, intellectually, I've introduced declarative justification. It's likely something that you've never heard of, probably something that you've never even thought of before. We have a deep gospel because it's been designed by an infinite God. Now, let me ask you this then, intellectually. Will your life declare that you are justified by a God who transformed your life? Will your life declare on that day of judgment that you have been transformed by a God who saved you? Will your justification be justified at the final judgment? Will your justification be justified at the final judgment? And as we saw last week, that transformation begins with a poverty of spirit with the realization that you bring nothing to God except sin, but having experienced then that salvation as you come to Him utterly poor in spirit, utterly bankrupt with really nothing to offer but your sin, you now see that you have been forgiven of that enormous debt of sin, and now that changes you to make you into a merciful person, one that is ready to forgive others because you have been so greatly forgiven by God yourself. And if that is true of you, then congratulations, you are a blessed person. And based on that transformation that God has done in your life, you will be one who receives mercy at the final judgment. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we thank you for this gospel. We thank you that although we could never do anything to earn our salvation, and that all we had done was racked up an unpayable debt of sin that really deserved your infinite penalty in hell. We thank you that you are such a merciful God that you sent Jesus Christ to save us and cleanse us and transform us and even make us a new creature so that we now turn away increasingly from sin and that we become a people now who can forgive others because of what you've done for us. Pray that we would be a people that understand this gospel deeply and that we would understand it not just in our heads, but we would understand it so that it changes our lives because we know that unless it does change our lives, we are not your children. Thank you for this time. Thank you for this message. We pray you would bless us as we continue to worship you in the Lord's Supper. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.